to the Bad Vibe Club. This is episode four of our six-part series on Adam Curtis's new show, Can't Get You Out of My Head. I've got Andrea, Oscar, Ross, the whole gang here today. We talk about lots of things. We talk about Curtis's writing style, his script. Ross raises the possibility that he might have taken inspiration from bureaucratic documents. We talk about bureaucracy, actually, his Curtis's generalizations about bureaucracy and what that means for how interesting his analysis can be. And we talk about his conflation of liberal and radical, which seems quite a big issue. But we start off with Oscar delivering his verdict on the episode. I mean, for all we know, all of this was Oscar's plan to not miss the podcast, if I might. <laughs> That's good. That's dedication. Right. I don't know, it was an especially boring episode, so I'm not sure if I'll do that. Oh, zing! We have not even started... Oh, we have started recording. I'm going to start recording. Okay, everyone start recording before Oscar says any more zingers. So, Oscar's been ill, but he's decided to join us for the podcast just so he can say terrible things about it. What did you just say? Oh, it was an especially boring episode. Especially boring. Why was it especially boring? Uh, I feel like not much happened like normally they at least introduce something or develop something i feel like there were no there was none of that there was no action really in this episode mm. nothing i feel you look at me but i think all the episodes are boring so i'm like I don't know. <laughs> what did you think of us did you think nothing happened i guess you've you've played catch up haven't you yeah, I kind of watched from back to back. I think, yeah, I agree. It felt especially sort of flabby. Why do you think that was? I don't know. I think, I, I think by the end of the third, third just as a, as a general viewer, I think by the end of the third episode, I was kind of thinking, well, this just adding of new layers and new people, just I started losing faith that it was going to join up, I think. And then that continued in the in the fourth episode. It was just more content. But I, yeah, I I fit what Oscar said about it not developing. Well, what's weird about this uh, you know series is that slowly you know we mentioned a few times. Oh, it's quite linear. I always thought Adam Curtis's stuff was really associative, but I've just watching this thing today as it's coming to a bit of history that where I'm alive, basically, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I remember Kosovo, I remember, I don't know, uh, like Tiananmen, people talking about Tiananmen Square and stuff, I was alive for that, and realising, yeah, he's just going to come right up to the present day, isn't he, and say that all of this stuff formed exactly where we're living at now. So it's not going to be a conspiracy so much as just a, I don't know, like a total explanation for the exact situation we find ourselves in, which... I don't know if he's ever done that before. So maybe that's why it feels a bit flabby because he's just having to run through bits of history that aren't necessarily really, really, really interesting, but are just like they happen, so he has to deal with them. I mean, they are interesting. Sorry, that's an insane thing to say. But maybe he doesn't have loads to say about Kosovo, for example, but he decided to include it. Well, that's why I think. I think you use the word having to, but I don't think he has to do anything. Yeah. You know, like it's all choice and... It all, I have to say, from I think the choices seem pretty arbitrary to me. They don't. I think by the end of the third, I really felt that he was battling with the archive. 
ah, with the BBC archive and just the size of the archive and how to make decisions about what to choose. As in there's, you think there's too much? In this series, it felt like he'd already had a preconceived idea of what he wanted to say and then he was finding footage to, or content to build that argument. Mm, and okay. I think there's just so... Uh, yeah, I think he struggled. Uh, it felt like a bit of a... Not that he struggled, but it was a, there was a challenge to do with the size of the archive and, and the size of the topic. Like, mm. There's lots of things that you could build into that narrative. Um, yeah, what do you choose? I keep thinking about the podcast that I listened to, Ralph's podcast about this, and they kind of sign off saying, kind of glad that they don't have to watch another Adam Curtis film for five years, but then also kind of talking about it like, this could easily be his last series because it kind of brings together all the themes that he's talked about in these more partial histories that he's done and brings them all together in a very linear fashion over, yeah, like, I don't know, the whole of the late 20th century. So in a way, it's, it's a little bit like he's kind of rounding up his own project or something, but that's making it a little bit flabby, perhaps, because he's trying to get it all the way from, you know after the World War Two to literally today, because, you know, he brings in the American um, election and stuff like that. Does anyone have a, a rough go at, like, just summarising the themes that were in there, though? I know you never remember anything, Andrea. Was there anything you actually remember from this episode? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I realised that um, I remember a lot about Yeltsin, which I was, like, like buried in my memory, <laughs> like, the whole character. And I remember, um, and I think... Um, that kind of that transition of the Soviet Union and then the part to the oligarchs and then that um, yeah I got like the, the transition then in China mm. with the it's just it was just like a, a series of like I don't know combinations of revolutions or transitions of power so um, but I don't know maybe that's what's happening in all of them Doctors Without Borders and the oh, Live yeah. Aid. I think at some point he kind of like backtracked on it, but at some point he, I was watching it with Oscar and he was talking about the famine and the politicians. And then this, uh, this Bob Geldof talking to Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher saying, oh, whatever. And then he said something like, and then Live Aid proved that politics was not the way to make change anymore and that this was the new way to change the world. And I was like, did he just said that? Is that like no. a conclusion? But again, I think like he, ch he changes the tune, but I think it's all about, yeah, these kind of like moments of real failure of change or like changes that go completely wrong. I think that yeah. was the theme of the episode for me. Like On that bit, I think that was an interesting bit because I think it is, that is exactly his argument is that politics could not do the things that individuals wanted it to do and individuals found a way to bypass politics but once they bypassed politics they realized they didn't have you know he ends that section talking about the dictator in ethiopia rounding up people from the refugee camps using the food as bait and then sending them to kind of you know political prisoner camps in the south of the country so i think that is that is like that whole section is his argument which is like politics found itself unable to do the things that the masses wanted but when the individuals came out of those masses and bypassed politics and did stuff themselves they found themselves not able to deal with the raw power of military violence and money essentially i thought the julia 
Grant stuff, this was definitely just something that was in the BBC archive. There was a really nice moment where Julia Grant is being interviewed, being asked why she feels like a woman, saying she had, and then they're telling her that she identifies with certain stereotypical aspects of femininity and that, like, that doesn't make her a woman. And then it cuts to Maggie Thatcher, like, knowingly referring to shoulder pads and dresses, like, doing exactly that for political game and being massively rewarded for it does that make sense like I, yeah. I thought that was like a really nice cut it was a great cut yeah I thought that whole section was was quite striking I think just because of the the content of the footage I think it was a mix it had such a Curtis sort of let it play to such an extent that you had a mix of narrative like of the footage own narrative like voiceover narrative and the voiceovers of the and the voices of the characters and it he doesn't normally use footage like that it really felt like its own footage and it was being allowed to play rather than being appropriated by curtis and slide in do you, do you see what i mean it as in he let julia grant and the characters in that story talk yeah, in the footage and, rather than just describing what they're yeah, saying. Yeah, and he let them talk, but and he let them, the voiceover of that footage talk as well. It was like a real clip, like, here is a clip of this documentary, which I thought was quite um, jarring, and I hadn't sort of noticed that before. What did you, what did you guys think of the Julia Grant kind of storyline? Oscar, did you notice that? Did you take note of that story? I mean, I really like the footage, but I think, to me, it goes back to what anno- well, one of the many things that annoy me at Curtis, which is, I think, is like this, um, like, I think the footage is amazing because that, you know, because that is super interesting. But that, like, the BBC is part of the British state, and there's something about that, what is the context in which what is produced or that circulated, or, you know, that, that, that those images are being produced by the same company that is producing the images of Thatcher. And that's what's mm. interesting to me um, and that I find, no, like, yeah, not, not really fulfilling to me, like, it, you know, to not, to, for those issues not to be dealt with. Because it's right there. It's like happening in the footage, but Curtis never addresses that they're both from the same source. Yeah, exactly. And like, who, um, yeah. but I mean, the, the, the thing itself is super, um, like the footage itself is super interesting. But um. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that the psychologist is always off screen. Who's <laughs> like questioning the psychiatrist who's questioning her about her gender identity and kind of, you know, constituting her as a imposter or whatever is this literal off screen kind of godlike, very loud, low voice. And he like directs other women to, you know, contradict her sense of self and stuff. There's such a political viewpoint on that footage as well, which I think is something that is not in the rest of the footage. That you know, the the rest of the footage feels has that kind of like BBC neutrality to it or something. Well, this footage feels that you know it has been constructed to show people how horrible the NHS is to uh, trans people, um, which is also again something super interesting in the in the context of. Well, that's true, isn't it? I wonder if that that will be but a Google away because it will probably be a documentary footage rather than BBC news footage, whereas a lot of the political stuff is, I'm assuming, news footage. I'll tell you what, my favourite bit of footage, though, and this is where I just wrote something like, well, this is one of the reasons to watch Adam Curtis, is that bird flying around in the final Commissar meeting after, you know, the Communist Party's kind of been dissolved or whatever. 
and all these like young communists like laughing and this little bird kind of alighting on the le uh, lectern and the microphones and stuff what's lovely ross did you notice he played burial yeah the first burial in the series i can't i, know, I can't believe I it took him so long <laughs> it was good it was reassuring hey we got limonov's kind of story as well because uh andrea and oscar you were talking a lot about limonov last time and we got his kind of i guess his resolution or his resolution within curtis's story what did you think of that him going to Serbia and stuff. I mean, I thought like that was a lot of build up for a lot of stuff that didn't really matter to that character. In the end. Like, I don't understand why that, that person needed to have all the backstory for them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like his girlfriends and women loved him and he did this and he hang out with like, it was like so long on the last episode. I'm just not interested in most of the people that he's interested okay. in, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, I think that's it. It does get to the heart of, Sometimes with TV shows, like it's about what it's about, isn't it? And if you look at what it's about and you think, I'm not, I don't fancy that, then it's never going to be able to pull you in because it's got, yeah, it's going to be about the subject matter that it's about. I thought that there was a big, a big glaring hole in the theoretical, historical stuff. And it was illustrated by a bit of script right at the start when he's talking about Bernard Cook. Kushner and Medicine Sans Frontier. he's saying that liberals in the West, for liberals in the West, the communists were heroes. But of course, that's not what a liberal is, someone who sympathises with communists. That's not correct. And then he says about how radicals had become corrupt, which is what he meant. Like he meant radicals both times. Was there, a, or am I just am I just misunderstanding what he's him saying by liberals there? Or is he using liberals like the alt right uses liberals? Yeah, I think he is. I think he's talking about pinkos. Yeah, yeah, liberals <laughs> as metropolitan soft left. But then he conflates that with radicals, which by does that he does he mean exactly the same thing like metropolitan soft left? I think he's yeah. I think it's just sort of. A couple of shorthands. I was going to say, not not saying it's lazy, but it's, yeah, it's pretty lazy. But anyway, the point is, is that he's constantly talking later on about all these people who believe they've overcome politics, right? And then he talks about the national um, Bolsheviks, this kind of new party Limonov comes up with, who wants to like, you, you know, go beyond right and left. But of course... Of course, going beyond right and left was literally the basis of fascism. Like that's what the National Socialists said they were doing. Like that—that's why it's called National Socialism. Like this idea of the third way has been around for a long time in democratic politics, mm -hmm. and it's always a way of people doing right-wing stuff. Like Tony Blair was a third-way politician. That was the d definition of what he did. Like, so I don't know if Curtis doesn't know this history, this term, or if he's just willfully ignoring it because it doesn't quite match up with the kind of reductive approach to the 20th century politics that he's doing. But I think it's, the, it's his thing, unless he's, he's like so obsessed with like strong theory or like making a conspiracy theory or something that he just, he, he constantly raises complexity, like he doesn't recognise complexity um, in situations, but also in individuals is what he did to like, you know, the Black Panther Party. Yeah. both in the US and here and it's what he does with the Vietnam War and the refugees it's like this idea that you know just one person was the only person who saw the through and then this other person all the rest are idiots and and it, <laughs> it never it never bothers that no there's like you know discussions and disagreements and uh, a lot of other people have theorized those things in super interesting ways he just like 
he makes it's like he commodifies everything into points to his arg- to his theory or something it reminds me a little bit of you know i've just started this phd and stuff but a lot of the advice around writing is to find the possible critiques of your argument and like lean into writing about them because you'll probably end up with a stronger argument and it's a bit like if he accepts that the black panthers wasn't just a series of individuals but nor was it a you know if he accepts it's kind of a midpoint or a, an amalgamation of individuals but also like ideologies and groups and stuff then he believes his argument will collapse but perhaps if he actually spent a bit of time with that it would just make it a stronger piece of work or something and i think to go back to to go back to that point to ross's point about you know having at the end illustrating it and then you go to the archive of the bbc which is an archive of narratives and characters Mm. used to explain certain things then you only get those kind of like you know hero narratives and you never because that's not how the news are covered right like complexity is not there you just go and find someone to represent that idea and then you take it over so it's this really weird collage of all these people that with the idea that they are the whole thing but they're not it's just like a bbc uh, framework been writing this thing about how it's made that uh, tv show about f- industrial processes and it's all about if there are these five minute segments that show like how a cigarette's made how is um, a pen made how is matches made and every single industrial process magically fits into the five minute minute segment format because like it has to it's like it it only starts as raw materials come into the factory and it ends before they get distributed so it just obviously i'm not this, this isn't a critique of how it's made but it's just like so interesting how it necessarily mirrors the like obfuscation or kind of um ideological ignorance of like capitalism right like it it pretends that like commodities are just made in little factories and sold and that is just like a free market thing and doesn't talk about kind of distribution networks or just-in-time delivery or labor or any of these things that would obviously render how it's made completely impossible to make because it would stop being a five-minute segment and start having to be like you know whatever a two-hour documentary or something and i suppose that's the thing here like if you use the BBC News Archive, you're going to replicate those kind of mistakes that the original footage, the assumptions around them, which the original footage was shot. And I think that's interesting because then it goes to what, I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but what you're writing about, how it's made, which is, you know, how it becomes, there's a specific way in which you consume it because you don't have to deal with any of those complexities. So there's like a pleasure in kind of dealing with this, you know, I don't know, surface experience of the process or something there's a there's a a whole epistemic pleasurable relationship with it and maybe that's the thing that annoys me but that's the thing that a lot of people find incredibly pleasure is kind of what i said i I said commodify but i just wanted to say is what wanted to uh, just thinking about this loosing out of meaning and uh, and the hero narrative and just like the world being the sequence of hero narratives that actually are meaningless or something. I don't know, there's something quite consumable in what he does to those um, selections of footage or something. Mm, yeah, it's like relaxing to have it explained to you in this very consistent tone. But I don't find, I don't find them that relaxing. But I do, to get, to get, yeah, to give it its credit, I still think there are just lovely bits of footage in there. And I wonder how, like, what other technique there would be to use that footage. The opening scene is amazing. Uh, it's Julia Grant, like, dressed in kind of male clothes. A slowly dipping crane shot as she walks home from work and gets changed into women's clothes, set to this amazing bit of music. And it all, all Curtis has done is taken the opening of a documentary and 
redo the music but it's just so amazing it's like such a nice thing but i don't know yeah there's i don't know if that's really enough to justify yeah this kind of entire yeah, also, project and also like how do we feel about you know I, I haven't seen the original footage and how you know curtis has maybe like erased the history i'm quite i'm quite fascinated about who made this documentary and then who made those choices and those aesthetic choices that in a sense are the best thing in curtis film but are not his are someone else's who mm. for all i know was doing like a massive political risky kind of super interesting move at the time and and again it's like yeah i came with an amazing theory about so i don't know i think you were on the group as well ross but matt and i were talking about irritation this week and i was quite fascinated about this idea of the irritation as an aesthetic claim or like an affect but i think something that you said was the idea that irritation is something that you feel in your skin. And I got kind of mm. I got kind of obsessed with it. Like, what does it mean to because I have a clearly a very, you know, like my reaction to Cortis is pure irritation. And and there's something about why is irritation and not other things? And it's because I cannot articulate it properly. I just feel it. It's like a very embodied reaction to to it. And I and I kept thinking that maybe irritation has to do with this aesthetic encounter with an object that somehow denies your form of living or your identity or your sense of self and it's so profound that you cannot really it's like you cannot overcome this feeling and I think this thing these choices about you know that Curtis make they're they're all against things that I find really important to my sense of identity and the way that I understand the world and it's like a a shock and I'm quite fascinated because then I was thinking but it's also not necessarily you know as not affects or aesthetics are like related to good or like you know like good moral positions or something so i think oh, maybe this is something is the same sort of feeling that a racist person feels when they see someone that is the other and that person threatens their sense of self and identity and it's just like this really uh, physical way of reacting to an object and i think that's what i have with him that makes me mm. that makes it so hard for me to relate to the object because it there's a real danger to or real threat and threat to core beliefs you reject it at the level of surface so you for me i'm like watching it being like well this isn't this isn't the best curtis film and then being like oh but that's a nice footage but you can't do that because at every moment you're like rejecting it at the level of like it's the yeah it's like what it kind of presents as a threat or something i don't know yeah yeah something like i don't know like when when i watch that footage the first thing i think is like he's erasing someone yeah, and that yeah, person yeah. that is usually raised in that situation would be me so I got full solidarity <laughs> with the erased yes, person okay, because yeah. those practices are the practices that erase me <laughs> so there's like a different way to kind of like engage but I'm, I'm kind of fascinated because I'm interested in then you know how does irritation become anger or doesn't or you know become socialized or articulated or what does he say about things well I, I mean well, Nagai doesn't go into this I don't think or maybe I, I think I finished that chapter Nagai doesn't go into this but my assumption would be that irritation has some kind of relationship to disgust in the sense that it's it's like partly got a metaphorical and or kind of a complex relationship between like a somatic response like when our skin is actually irritated we get and we itch it you know and same thing when we're when we're physically disgusted we retch but they're also metaphorically used for like emotional responses to things so i wonder if it's like a rejection form of um feeling 
And it's all about locating that irritation in an object so you can get that object away from you. Just like when you're sickened by something, you want to get as far away from that object as possible because you don't want to be sick. But we're just bringing you back to the irritating object over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's what I was going to follow up. I think to me, that's the difference between irritation and disgust. There's an accumulation of irritation. Irritation is almost like the thing that you cannot escape in a sense, mm. you know, when you're like, I don't know, you have like an allergy or you have like a, a trouser that kind of like, you know, irritates your skin in a certain part and you just kind of live with it. And there's this thing that is always there, present and annoying and rejected, that there's something different in that dynamic, which is what I, because I think you mentioned race at the beginning when we started talking about it. Um, and I kept thinking about, yeah, this idea of like, you know, the racist being irritated, but also, you know, the person who suffers racism every day being irritated. Like, is this, there's a different time to it, which I think is, it's not like, you know, like the sublime that hits you and then you deal with it and you're like transcend or something. It's, there's something every, every day and routine and kind of goes back to that ideas of like maintenance or care or like this, that sort of time, I think. Yeah, the race stuff is, is so complex with Nagai. It's, it's, she's writing, so t- for context, it's Sean Nagai and she's writing in her book Ugly Feelings about irritation. And the example, she's a kind of literary critic and she's writing about Nella Larson's 1928 novel Quicksand, which is kind of part of this thing called the Harlem Renaissance, which I don't know much about. But um, Nella Larson seems to be a mixed race writer writing about being black in America, and it's kind of almost like a memoirish or autofictional novel. The character, similarly to the author, went to Denmark and started seeing a like going out with a white Danish man, and then ends up rejecting his um, proposal of marriage. And it's all about this character's irritation, seemingly at everything. Everything seems to affect her at the level of irritation, even like outright racism or violence affects you at the level of irritation anyway i won't go into it because i wouldn't be able to summarize it or do it justice but it's super interesting but yeah i when i was thinking about irritation in the context of this i wasn't thinking about sean nagai's version of the kind of racialized aspects of it though obviously there's a there is a bearing on this kind of um like a gendered and race bearing in terms of Curtis's work and yeah like the erasure of other people's work or like the kind of reuse of footage you know even even things I don't think he's particularly unsensitive to uh, what was her name Julia Grant's story but it's he's obviously like deploying it in the service of his grander narrative isn't it what else did you think about the episode Ross I did have um what I did think of this week was um last week you were talking about how like Curtis's performance in in the films and who was mm. who he was performing to and and the nature of that performance and I was I have this weird thing where I was reading a uh, report following um, by it's it's an organisation called HRMC which is her sorry HMIC her Maj- her Majesty's Inspectorate. And they inspect fire brigades. And after inspections, they write reports. And I was reading this report, and I just started reading it in Adam Curtis's voice, <laughs> which was super weird. But there is something about the way his scripts are really similar to kind of official reports. It's, and it's, I, was, I was looking at it, and it's to do with, well, I think it's to do with his sort of downward inflection after each kind of sentence. 
but it's also the length of his sentences are very short and broken up with commas and it's it's for pauses and he speaks as if how something is written how a report is written it's super interesting Mm. i think um and i guess it's about like creating an authority or yeah i I don't know i just thought it was worth sort of mentioning because I, I never paid attention to, to that, but because that's something that Ross always does when we have to write things together, which is you're super attentive to active versus passive sentences. You know, the idea that things are done, not, mm. you know, um, and I was no, wondering... We do things rather than things are done. Yeah, exactly. That's what <laughs> yeah. he always has to correct me. Um, <laughs> but so I was thinking about, you mentioned that, and I was thinking about in the way that uh, Curtis expresses himself, if you have paid attention to that as well, like if there's a, specific way in which action and agency gets distributed that is similar to the reports yeah he's because that's what's interesting about the report so the report is written by is fronted up by an inspector by an individual so he would so they would kind of avoid using i or we and i and and definitely curtis doesn't speak about himself he never refers to himself. Well, I, I was going to say that Curtis always writes in the active, but it's a bit linked to what Andrea was saying about the attrib- attribution of s- stuff always has to be to individuals. Because again, not to like, a, I was reading actually a book that Andrea gave me, um, which is just about like good academic writing. And again, it's not as simple as just avoiding the passive. Like sometimes the passive is much more true than the active right like sometimes it wasn't jing xiang who did every single thing that happened in communist china sometimes things happened and if you don't have the space or it's not part of your job to explain exactly who did them and how they happened then it's best to do it in the passive voice rather than lying and attributing them directly to one individual Mm. because we don't have very you know maybe it's a flaw of the english language we don't have brilliant ways of like distributing agency without going passive you know without getting into longer sentences which Curtis doesn't like doing as well we can't say we co- we don't have like a neat way of saying Zhang Xing plus lots of other people that we're not talking about right here but just always assume that there is other people involved because otherwise you know this history is going to sound completely insane because Curtis doesn't want to have a long sentence and he doesn't like the passive I know it's not a tense is it but the passive way of writing he attributes every action to a a single individual and i suppose what happens in those kind of reports is that they write often in the passive way because they it would be wrong to attribute every action to an individual but they still want to use short sentences because they require it to be understood by a wide range of people is that correct or is it quite a slim audience no it would be a slim it's i mean it's not for the public i don't think I really like the idea that people listening to this don't know you're the director of fire in <laughs> and they just think that you read this stuff for fun. Okay, I have to say we we were reading this stuff for fun before. <laughs> no, yeah. That's, that's what this, got you the but... job though, isn't it? I also read this stuff for fun. <laughs> I think it's more stylistic. I, I think it's less about the act. For me, I think the experience that I had was less about the active versus passive and it was just about the sentence construction and the and the sound the sound of sentences and i think it was about curtis had clearly 
written. It did, maybe it's about the process that Curtis came to. You know, it felt like he'd written something and then and then read it out, which I think is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> which is quite right. Which he, he would do. But don't say it first before you write it. <laughs> But, you know, it it doesn't feel like a script for speaking. It feels like, okay, I'm going to write an essay. Um, And he's sort of broken up the essay a bit, but the centre, like, to make it shorter and sort of snappier. But the sentence construction is, you know, is still very much of a kind of report. Oh, that's that's how it felt to me. Totally, and I think that's why he doesn't end up often allowing characters to actually speak in the footage that he shows because he's already paraphrased what they've said and kind of editing it would be a bit too complex, so he just has them silent while he Mm -hmm. explains what they've done and what they've said. And I wonder what it is. Let's maybe focus in on this. What is it about Julia Grant's story that makes Adam Curtis self-aware enough to let her speak? Is it that, like, you know kind of trans rights movement in the, that's come to popular attention in the past for however many years has touched something in Adam Curtis that's made him reflect on like how he writes his scripts maybe he just doesn't want to be cancelled yeah you know like he's the sort of guy who'd be worried I don't know if he, he would claim not to be scared of getting cancelled but he'd be like doing little bits of work to try not to be cancelled but, but I think it, but I think it's interesting because he does that to you know, black activist, and, and I think that, that choice yeah. is interesting. Um, and I think there's something about how, and it, I think it's a very now thing, but how from a leftist perspective, maybe there is an acknowledgement that you need to have a certain lived experience or like, you know, and, and allow certain people to articulate their experiences that has not been given to this other, you know, the, like... Usually when you, you know, we go to a black space, a black event, there will always be like, you know, the white dude with a Marxist t-shirt that will get up at some point and be like, guys, it's all about class or uh, whatever. And, and they feel like they can really talk about that and, and everything will be fine and accepted. And maybe that is something that hopefully from trans spaces to other spaces, people are starting to realize that actually just shut up and listen every now and then and allow other people to articulate their experiences. So I think I, I would like to give him the benefit of the doubt that this is just something that it's, it's starting there, That but then maybe, mm-hmm. maybe actually his next films were going to be more interesting to me because he gets something from this experience of like allowing these characters articulate their own relation to, to, to the state and to power and to politics themselves and then have to negotiate in dialogue with them. I don't know. It does strike me, though, that the Julia Grant footage is from a documentary and I don't know where the Black Panther footage was from, but perhaps from news. Maybe, he, maybe his use of it is reflecting the way it was made in the sense that maybe Julia Grant's story captured you know, the imaginations of documentary makers back then in the, when is it, late 70s, early 80s? In a way that, like, the Black Panther Party only ever captured the news cameras, you know, as in the cameras of white, privileged British, like, producers. Like, maybe there's something, I don't know, like, it just strikes me that maybe there's another thing where it's reflecting down from the archive into what Adam Kurtz is producing rather than a totally conscious decision by Curtis. But, I, you know, we, we can't know that. In terms of in terms of like choice, because he has chosen things that are from outside of the archive, like with the uh, Limonov, he could have chose you know Agnes Varda's documentary on the Black Panthers. Like it's not like there are not documentaries about these people. 
So again, like, it's just, that is a choice. Guys, I was going to ask you about his presentation of bureaucracy at the end. It sneaks in this idea of technocrats and the EU gets invoked as this kind of extreme bureaucracy. As people who've done kind of work around bureaucracy and almost in defense of bureaucracy, what did you think about that characterization of bureaucracy as kind of sudden new force in the world? Yeah, I don't think it's a particularly new observation. Um, I mean, it's of a level of bureaucracy that personally I'm not particularly interested in, I have to say. Ah, okay. And why is that? Just expand on that a little bit. Because I think I'm less interested in the EU as a bureaucratic force and more interested in what happens in HR departments, in companies or, you know, that admin. I think think there are lots of, like, really interesting... Connections that, again, like don't get explored, like, for example, you know, the connection between like bureaucracy and communism and bureaucracy, mm. you know, like in communist China, for example, bureaucracy has been a massive force for like redistribution of like means and power in, you know, post-revolution or something like that in, in a communist context. I think there's this connection to the thing that he was talking before, which is the move in specifically in Britain from, you know, community work and grassroots and, and, and how all of that was transformed into bureaucracy through kind of the left and um, Ralph Miliband and all that, you know, influence that basically slowly evolved to what we have now here. So I just, this is one of my problems. I just think he uses these terms in a way that kind of like empty them of any meaning and they're just pure judgment. Like the way he uses politics, I completely disagree with the way, you know, he defines politics Mm -hmm. and what people expect from politics. Um, And historically what people have, as if people have always have the same relation to politics and then this massive yeah, thing yeah. change. And I think the way he uses technocrat, it's just up to me, all these words that are like political concepts, they become empty whenever he just uses them to attribute value or like goodness or failure. And that's what I mean about he's completely, he's completely in, uninterested in complexity. And I, I'm mm. completely interested in complexity. It was also like super interesting to, you know, to watch that being done after Trump, which was a government that was specifically interested in destroying bureaucracy. And at the moment where we have like revived our faith in bureaucracy. And again, like my mom lives in Brazil. I grew up in Brazil. Brazil is a country where like, that's how democracy has been sort of like destroyed is by like destroying all those bureaucratical um, places that distribute power. So in one mm. sense, I understand how they are, you know, full of problems and corruption and, uh, and don't work. And in another sense, I also understand how they also sustain and allow for a lot of stuff to happen. So, and, and to, to choose to do that critique to European Union now, when, he, you know, he has just added the film, like, I don't know, a month ago or a month and a half ago, it just feels really weird to, I, 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 and again, my, it goes back to my reaction in every film, which is a bit what Ross was saying about when every episode, which is like, what is his point? Like, what side he's on? Why is he doing this? I don't understand who he wants from it or what he mm. wants from me other than tell me that he cracks it and he knows stuff. All right. Oscar, I wondered, uh, I, you don't feel like you have to contribute this, but we did talk about you doing a word for each episode. Is there a word that comes to mind about this episode? I didn't get much from this episode. Uh, I thought it was a bit thin on. Thin. That could be the word. Ad Thin Curtis, Margaret Thincher. No, I don't know. All right. Well, has anyone got anything else to say about that? Oh, there's a really good Smiths remix in there. It's really weird. It's like an IDM Smiths remix. Oh, I, I, I know 
Yeah, I noticed some I'll try and find them. Send it. Yeah, they're like blippy, bleepy songs. Yeah, yeah, I think that was I a Smith. I didn't realise it was Smiths. It was like Morrissey through a, a vocoder or something. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Bad Vibes Club. Oh, by the way, it isn't a Morrissey remix. It's a cover of There Is A Light That Never Goes Out. It's by Schneider TM and KPT Michigan, The Light 3000. Uh, I think I'll let it play out. Okay, see you next time.